Welcome to my mommy's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and I'm here today with, I think, the most requested podcast guest ever. Katie Bowman is a biomechanist by training and a problem solver at heart. She has an award-winning blog and podcast called Katie Says and she reaches hundreds of thousands of people each month. Um, Many people have taken her live classes, her online classes, and she's the author of eight books. Those will all be in the show notes. I recommend every single one of them, but including Move Your DNA and Movement Matters. And I've used her information personally when I had breech babies, when I had uh, like sciatica during pregnancy. She has a, a ton of amazing information. I would highly encourage you to check her out, but I can't wait to jump in right now. So Katie, welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks, Katie. We have the two Katies going on. This is going to be fun. It is going to be fun. So to start off, I wanted to define a few of the terms that you use often so that we have a framework for this interview. So you use the term nutritious movement quite a bit. Your book is called Move Your DNA. So what do you mean by nutritious movement? Well, nutritious movement, it is um, kind of a simple way of summing up a very large idea, which is, I would say maybe most listeners have this understanding of how nuanced nutrition is that you don't just need to eat, right? Like don't starve is not the, the only nutritional guideline. So you know, it's not only adequate calories, it's that, it's that the, you're getting a range of macronutrients, right? That you have that you've got fats and proteins and carbohydrates, but that's not even really sufficient. Um, if you only had those guidelines that there's also vitamins and minerals and that there's uh, dosages or percentages of your total diet that needs to come from uh, or contain all of these various components. And so that comes easy to us because we've all kind of received this baseline information, like this idea of what nutrition is took 500 years. You know, it's about 500 years of data collection. But I learned a lot of it in elementary school, right? I remember learning the food pyramid and like, here's what a protein is in a very age appropriate way. But these ideas were introduced very early on because um, nutrition is very impactful to the physical experience that you're having. Movement, on the other hand, were kind of lagging behind, literally, in in the in the movement component of recognizing that movement in the same way that you need to eat, but not only that, it needs to be widely varied and that there are specific amounts of different types of motions that you need. We just say kind of like move more. We're still we're still not recognizing the profound impact that how much you move and how you move and maybe the frequency and the distribution of that movement is tremendously impacting the physical experience that you're having. So I talk about um, in Move Your DNA that movement is really affecting you like food on the cellular level. And so if we can think about, if we can parlay that 500 years worth of understanding about how inputs work and that there are essentially essential inputs for a human body, that we can kind of save ourselves some time with movement to help us get this kind of what would be the equivalent to a whole food diet, but like a whole food movement diet. What's a, what's a nutritious, varied movement diet that not only has the abundance that we need, like the, the movement, total minutes of movement that we need, but also contains like all the, the nuanced variability, making sure that all of our parts are moving well. And that's, that's essentially what that nutritious movement is standing for is like you, it's the same as nutrition. It's the same thing. So you can save yourself time and, and get moving well. Yeah. And I love that you're really pioneering the research about this and, and writing so much about this, because I think you're right. Like we all know that we're more sedentary now than we ever have been, but I think you're really breaking down how that's actually affecting us on a cellular level, which is awesome. And I want to talk about one of your favorite things, at least I'm guessing based on your writing, it's one of your favorite things, which is squatting, because you have a piece called You Don't Know Squat and another one called You Still Don't Know Squat. And you have some great information in there. But basically, you say everyone should be squatting. Kids do it perfectly. I'm watching my toddler learn to walk and she can squat perfectly without trying. It's the walking that's hard for her. So talk about squatting and why it's such a base mechanic that we need to to relearn if we've forgotten how. Well, it's kind of one of those I would consider... um a, a squat to be like a, a macronutrient category, right? It, it's a it's a movement that human bodies have been doing really kind of up until now, right? Squats are how you go to the bathroom. They're how you take rest. And in our particular culture where we've got chairs and we've got toilets, we've kind of phased out that movement, but we still have the anatomy 
that requires that movement to stay fully strong, fully supple, right? So kids can do it very well because they haven't adapted to not squatting yet. Like that's like the environment that we live in is a non-squat environment. So we have become non-squatters. So when we go to try to do it, it's like, ah, my body doesn't do that. Kids have not adapted to being non-squatters yet. They came as squatters as we did. And as long as you don't interfere with that behavior, um, by, you know, not allowing them to squat or maybe um, putting so much furniture out where they would take rest in a different way, they're going to maintain that ability and mobility in their parts. So squatting, it's like if you think of squatting as a nutrient, when you don't have that nutrient, there are symptoms that arise. And so when a lot of I think the squatting stuff really was in response to pelvic floor issues, uh, low back issues, hip and knee issues. And everyone's like, the, all these parts are hurting me. I'm very young. I don't what's the issue? And I was like, well, there's this movement that the human body has done really ultimately throughout its history, just until right now, that if it was done. And not just one squat or 10, but, you know, like a this whole category of squatting, squatting varied throughout the day, peppered through your life, if you will. Had you been doing that, then you, your knee mobility and your hip mobility and your low back mobility and your pelvic um, resting position, and then also how those mobilities, when you have them, when you go to walk, when you're not squatting, how those mobilities then change the muscles that you're using when you walk and you stand. Had we had we had this, then the mechanical contributors to all of those things that you're talking about, the knee pain or the back pain or the SI joint pain or the pubic symphysis pain or a multitude of pelvic pelvic stuff, like that, it wouldn't have expressed itself so well. So then just like nutritional therapy, right? If you go to a nutritionist and they're like, oh, I see you've got symptoms of scurvy. Here's some vitamin C initially, yes. And then here are some diets that contain vitamin C and you kind of slowly start working to fill that void of input. And then as you fill in the vitamin C and eventually choose foods that are more vitamin C rich and replace maybe foods that keep you from absorbing vitamin C or whatever, nutritional is pretty not nutrition is pretty nuanced that you um begin to see a relief of symptoms so squatting was like that for me you don't know squat was like okay maybe you've never squatted before like most of us so here is kind of a little tutorial to see what parts of you like squatting as easy as it seems as easy as it seems when kids are doing it they require it requires the mobility the full mobility of a lot of different parts right it, it's your your ankle joints, the the mobility of your foot muscles and your calves and your hamstrings and your quads and your hip flexors, all of those have to change shape when you come down into a squat. And the less able they are to change shape, the more something else, usually your back has to change shape and then you just tumble backwards. So people are like, I can't squat. Or maybe you have the mobility to get there, but then you don't have the strength in your legs to hold yourself in that position. Cause that's, you know, you're, you're a heavy full grown person and to lower your mass to and away from the ground requires quite a bit of strength. And so people would say, I'm coming, I'm down in a squat, but when I stand up, I feel a lot of downward pressure, you know, and maybe that's exacerbating a, a pelvic symptom or a diastasis recti. And it's like, yes. Okay. So now we know that we have many parts, joints and muscles and connective tissue and, and motor habit that all need to be trained just to do this one simple thing. And so we start to first supplement with some corrective exercises, right? We're using them like vitamins, we'll like stretch your calves here a little bit. And I'm going to have you stretch your, your hamstrings here a little bit. And you're just trying to start moving these joints or hinges that haven't moved very much. And, and then you're going to come down into a squat a little bit, but you're going to put something underneath here and hold on to here. Cause we're going to try to reduce the weight that you're putting on this squat. So it's bolstered a little bit so that it's like a more gentle way to slowly start re recouping vitamin squat, if you will. And then slowly as you do this more and more frequently, and then that's the, that's the supplement version, but then it's like, okay, well, instead of just sitting in a chair every day, why don't you take some of your rest in a squat or a bolstered squat? And now that's the equivalent to choosing a, a different movement diet, like choosing to, to, uh, partake of 
movements that have more uh, nutritional benefits to you that are moving more of those cells on a cellular level. And then lo and behold, as you do more of these mobility exercises and add more of these different motions into your life, the symptoms that you were experiencing in the absence of vitamin squat start to subside. So I, not all humans move exactly in the same way, but there are like these fundamental categories of movements that all humans have likely done throughout the eon or millennia. So I'm trying to help people kind of get these main categories that they might have been missing. Maybe they can't walk long distances because of like a foot or a knee or back issue, or they can't can't squat or they can't hold their weight on their arms. Trying to fill in these these gaps in their movement diet so that the symptoms that they're experiencing, whether it's like I said, like pelvic issues or low back or knee or shoulder or wrists, that we can see those more of symptoms of a lack of particular types of movement. So I, I love the squat. I love the squat because in graduate school, that's what I, I studied, a female pelvic floor disorder. And so for me, that was really standing out as a huge difference between how um, we move, you know, Western North Americans compared to other people um, in the world that don't have that same, uh, who squat way more often. And I was like, oh, this could be really helpful. And it turns out that it has been for a lot of people re reintroducing the squat in a kind of gentle step-by-step -step format. Yeah, I love that. I love that you call it vitamin squat. And I know there are other trainers. Um, most recently, I was reading some work by um, a guy named Jersey in California who is, I believe, in his 60s and still has like amazing range of movement. And he's all about like people being able to keep their full squat as well and why that's so important. And um, I'm curious too, one question I got a lot from the audience is about people who do have to sit for a job or who are like more confined. And right now I'm recording eight podcast interviews in a day. So I'm standing the entire time hooked up to a headphone, but I have like your um, half arch things. I'm stretching my calves and usually I'll ask a question, put it on mute and like go down into a squat as well as I can on a desk and even sometimes like lay on the floor, just different things to move around. But how can people, especially in an office setting, work that in on a daily basis? Well, I wrote a whole book about that because I think it was kind of unfair. Like I wrote Movie or DNA, which is like, hey, look at all the movement <laughs> you need to be getting. And then, you know, I imagine that most people are in a sort of like nine to five setting. Doesn't mean that you're in an office, but you're like productive in a very static way. So I was like, okay, here, here's actually how you can be stationary, which means like I'm in front of my, I'm stretching my calves right now too, as we're talking. So I am stationary, but I'm not sedentary, meaning I'm at a standing desk right now. I'm stretching my calves. I'll be stretching my arms and my shoulders. I'll have some phone calls that I need to take later on business calls and I will save them all up and I will go out and walk for an hour to be able to take them. So acknowledging that most people have this limitation of, of that they have to go to work. The easiest thing is to focus on moving outside of the least malleable areas of your life. So are you moving in the time before you go to work, which can include getting up 15 minutes earlier, simply to do a little bit of, um, you know, corrective exercise or to take a small walk. Do you walk to work or if you can't walk all the way there or if you're taking your kids to school, can you walk them to school? And if those two things are too uh, challenging and that the distance is so great, could you drive partway and then park in kind of a, a safe area where then you can then walk the kids the rest of the way or you yourself walk the rest of the way um, into your office or wherever you're going for work? Is there a way to add more movement into your desk time, I do recommend that people create a dynamic workspace. So most of us have a, a pretty traditional office setup, right, where it's just a chair, one chair that you sit the one way in over and over and over again, and then you've got your, your desk set up. But one thing you could do if you're listening to this would just be to adjust the way that you're sitting. So even if you're just totally, feel totally trapped and like, I not only am not allowed to have a standing work desk, I can't get an ergonomic chair or whatever. It's like, well, just sit differently in your own chair. Scoot to the front. Stop leaning against the back of it. Tip your pelvis forward so that you're um, moving your hamstrings a little bit more and moving your hip flexors a little bit differently, right? So you're moving differently while you are just still sitting in that chair. And then um, 
Can you, usually you're on the phone a little bit. You don't have to do all of the tasks that you do probably in your chair. Can you stand up every time you're taking a phone call? Suggest walking meetings for your office. The more non-traditional your office, probably the better. They'll embrace a lot of these ideas. But um, if you're going to a meeting, can you stand at meetings or conferences and having going to a lot of meetings and conferences, being the only person who is standing or sitting on the floor kind of makes you stand out, which a lot of people don't feel comfortable doing. So if you are in administration, right, and any HR department should at this point be well versed in the idea that sitting long term in a chair is not good for any employee and that strategies to get them out of it that are inexpensive and simple should be in full effect by now. Even simple things like if you have a meeting, putting a piece of paper on the back wall saying standing area or stretching area grants everyone in the office permission to get out of the chair without seeming like they're outside of status quo. Um, those are just some solutions. And then one thing would be if you are using a standing desk, which I'm using, to recognize that your the way that you're standing is important. So um, this idea of alignment, like of, of adjusting um, your body parts to get more parts of you working. So like if you're standing in front of your desk, but your hips are all the way out in front of you and are resting on the table in front of you, then yes, you're standing, but you could be using more butt muscle and more hamstring muscle and more calf muscles to hold you as opposed to outsourcing all that stability to your desk. So I definitely have kind of a, a basic alignment checklist for how to know where your body is in space when you are choosing to be more dynamic. So it's mostly that. And then just, you know, when you do take movement breaks, how many, how many minutes do you step away from your work? If not with your body, certainly with your mind in that you're on Facebook, maybe during work time or kind of what I call the social media loop. You're like you're kind of pacing a loop on your computer. If you notice that you're doing that and you're already not being productive at work, use that time to stand up, reach your arms up overhead or to simply go to a door frame and reach up to the top of the door frame because the shoulders get moved hardly at all throughout our entire lives, but um, certainly throughout the day. And if you're on the computer that your arms do need to get overhead, like that's, that's a big motion, but you don't need, you know, you don't need to do a, a monkey bar gymnastics routine. It could certainly just start with reaching your arms over your head and doing a little stretch, you know, reaching up and out to the side, paint a little rainbow in the air. And now you're moving more. Yeah, I love that. You make it very doable. You can kind of give baby steps. And I, I will say, I think that your work is having an impact um, and that there is a raising awareness about this. Even health conferences that I've gone to over the last few years, it was like the first year there was just like the Dave Asprey's and the Abel James's of the world standing in the back with the orange sunglasses while everybody else sat. And now there's a lot more of them. And then you even have like Ben Greenfield doing like squats back there and all these stretches. So I think um, the information is spreading and it's largely in part to what you do. And another thing that you have a controversial opinion on is uh, Kegels. Mm -hmm. So obviously these are usually recommended. My listeners are largely moms. So these are recommended after having a baby and at various times involving pregnancy. And you have a great perspective on this. So where do you stand on those? Well, I squat on those instead of stand on those. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I would say that I don't, I don't have a problem with Kegels. Um, it's just that they come from a very narrow perspective, which is, I mean, obviously your pelvic floor needs to be functional in that it's strong enough to support the weight of your organs and anything else that's going on in your abdominal contents, like uh, pregnancy, um, not only when you're standing still, but when you are moving, right? So if that's walking, running, um, changing positions, when you're when you're having pelvic issues, what you are seeing is that that system isn't strong enough to support the function of that system. And so well, people will say, well, I only pee like when I laugh or when I run. And I said, yes, that you're when you're having an issue is when you increase the load. So maybe you're strong enough to support yourself when you're static, but you're not strong enough to support yourself when you're dynamic. And so the Kegel, what I call the Kate, like the great Kegel debate was just like this idea that we know that this needs to be stronger, you know, that your whole pelvic, your, that your whole body needs to be stronger because the pelvis doesn't work in a vacuum. But if we're just talking about the pelvic floor, it does need to be stronger. 
how we've decided to strengthen it is kind of like it's at that supplement level, which is just, well, then squeeze it, squeeze it, squeeze it, squeeze it. It's like giving it something to do. Let's let's work it out. And that's fine, except that what naturally elicits what you're doing when you're kegling, that pubococcygeal contraction is simply moving around more. And so we could tell people to move around more. And I don't only mean in terms of frequency, but also having better joint range of motion so that you're using more of your parts when you do move. You use all of your parts. So like if, if I say, and, and so it's not only squatting, I'll, I'll also kind of pair squatting with like walking. To me, squatting and walking and all of the corrective exercises that give you better joint ranges of motion when you squat and walk, not only strengthen your pelvic floor, they strengthen the lateral hips, they strengthen the glutes, they strengthen the hamstring, they strengthen the core musculature. That's my approach when I see someone who comes in. It's like, oh, well, you're, did you know that your movement, your movement is very low, not only in terms of how many minutes you're moving, but how much of your body is moving, right? So you get very stiff when you don't move. When you do go to move, like say you're still walking three or four miles a day as you're workout or running, you're not moving through the full range of motion of your joints. So very little of you is actually adapting to that bout of movement. Kegels is like doing the absolute minimum and only giving your pelvic floor something to do while you're still continued to be whole body sedentary. It's like, well, just, just work out one single muscle. It's like saying that you want a stronger, more robust shoulder and only doing bicep curls. Will your shoulder get stronger if you do bicep curls? Certainly to an extent, but the whole system won't be improved. It'll only be improved in that one way that your shoulder works to help you do a bicep curl. And then when you do a ton of bicep curls, if that's your only action of that body part over time, your arm starts to kind of take on the shape of a bicep curl. It starts to, you know, you start to get a little tense in through the elbow. Maybe your shoulder pulls forward because when you work one muscle in isolation, it tends to pull the skeleton in a particular way. And that's really my biggest issue with kegels because I would work with um, you know, we think of pelvic floor issues as like a new mom issue or a mom who's had multiple children issues. But for me, my perspective on pelvic floor issues are informed by the number of fitness professionals who have extremely tense musculature and very what they would be considered extremely fit who've had no children. So when you see the full spectrum of the issue, then you can go, oh, okay, I can see that 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 repetitive tension of the pelvic floor kind of done in isolation can shape the pelvis in a way that perpetuates it. So the Kegel is a great supplement, but you can OD on a supplement and make yourself kind of just as ill than if you didn't have it. So I just was, more, I'm less about like no Kegels, which I think is how I'm often portrayed if you haven't read very much of the, what I've written besides like a couple of articles and more for a more holistic, whole body, whole life approach to physical solutions in this case for the pelvic floor. But that's really my approach to everything uh, like musculoskeletal, everything physical is that let's consider the context so that we don't get caught up in thinking in taking like one small supplement for the rest of our lives and then having to do some other supplement to balance out this one supplement kind of done in excess. So it's just more of, that's why a natural, I like natural movement because it's kind of similar to stepping back and considering not the supplements or trying to balance the supplements you're taking, but considering the foods that you're choosing to eat and the diet. And, and then it, you know, it gets more and more greater context from there. And, and what is making us choose a particular movement diet? And can we play with those things a little bit? So I, I prefer a broader perspective is all. I love that because I'm the same way when it comes to food and a real food diet and how like, yeah, there's a time and a place for supplements, but not until you have the real food diet in place. And also, like you said, if you take too much of one thing, you take too much vitamin A, it interferes with vitamin D or calcium and magnesium and how all of these have to work together in the right amounts. So I love that you bring that perspective to movement where I think it's incredibly important. Um, another thing that you've written quite a bit about, and I know I have a lot of questions questions from listeners, is about diastasis and especially after pregnancy. And obviously, I would guess that all the movement helps with that as well. But 
is that related to the pelvic floor movement? Are there other things women would want to specifically be focusing on if they know they have that problem? Well, it's interesting because diastasis recti and pelvic floor issues. So you, if, if you're interested in both of them, this pertains to both. They are pressure related ailments. They are ailments that are, they're not only like weaknesses, like it's easy for us to boil everything down or chalk everything up to this one part wasn't strong enough. Your pelvic floor isn't strong enough in the case of pelvic floor issues and your and your uh, rectus abdominis or your core muscles aren't strong enough in the case of diastasis recti, where it's more that the way that you are moving, they're creating, or the way that you're tensing your muscles, which I would put all under the umbrella of movement, you're creating high pressures and these high pressures are straining different tissues. And so one of the things that really affects intra-abdominal and pelvic pressures have to do with the tension of your upper body. And so I think it's strange for people at first, if they would come to me or to any of our teachers or read some of our books to be like, you know, in diastasis recti, a lot of it starts with shoulder mobility work. Because, and it's kind of a disconnect where it's like, why am I doing shoulders for my pelvic issue? It's like, because the tension that is in your shoulders and your neck and your arms is causing your upper body to curl forward, but you don't walk around with your upper body curled forward. You kind of like lift your chest and lift, which pushes your rib cage out, or you'll push your pelvis forward. And those things start pulling on the tissues of your abdomen in a kind of highly frequent, unnaturally frequent way. And when done in the context of hardly moving at all, all the other parts of your body, there's over these time, these deformations. And, and, um, you know, we think of our pelvic organs as something that the pelvic floor is solely supporting. It's like, but those are on, they're connected on ligaments. They're being supported by other organs and ligaments. It's not solely the pelvic floor. So what happens when you're constantly bearing down on those pelvic organs, and then they're pulling on their ligaments, and then slowly those get deformed over time, which allows them to go lower. And so it's just, with diastasis recti, it's this idea that this isn't a weakness issue. This is a movement issue. And it's not that one body part isn't strong enough. It's that you hardly move hardly any of your body. And these are these are the symptoms of movement malnutrition rather than the weakness of one, one particular part. I think that's my overall message is that what we consider a musculoskeletal ailment or some sort of physical thing, there's certainly many other factors. You have to consider movement and other parts of the environment. But a main player in your environment is the types and frequencies of movement that you're getting. And so uh, many things are related back to this movement malnutrition. And so instead of, again, single supplementing and then having to supplement, like if you need to do exercises to correct something, but you have to do them indefinitely, then you didn't really change enough about the scenario that was leading it that way. So I would say I'd rather you focus your time on changing these aspects of lifestyle or movement practice so that you don't have to do movement supplements for the rest of your life that you kind of integrated the movement back into your life. So you're not thinking about or worrying about this one part of your body. You're going to be using your, your body in a way for your life that just has the net effect of you no longer have a diastasis recti. That makes total sense. And I know a lot of people may be wondering how to practically integrate these kind of things into your daily life. And from what I've read on your blog, you guys have a really interesting way that you do this on a daily basis. So you have very limited furniture compared to most people. And this is very intentional for you. So can can we talk about your house and what it looks like and why you made those choices? Well, it's just like, you know, people are trying to eat better if they say, you know, Katie, I want to start a whole a whole food diet. Oftentimes, you know, I want to eat better. I've had I have this health issue or this physical scenario that I'm trying to move away from and I recognize that it relates to what I'm eating. That one of the one of the practical tips for eating better is to remove all the food that keeps pushing you towards that physical issue in the first place, right? So you can bring healthy stuff in, but if you leave like the junk food in the house, there's a very strong chance that the environment that you're creating is going to be affecting how well you can 
transition to eating in a different way. So for me, once I recognize like, oh, I want to take rest oftentimes throughout the day, there's nothing wrong with taking rest or sitting, but I am so conditioned to like my human nature is conditioned to the path of least resistance, like the, uh, the most energy consuming habit that I will always plop in a chair versus sitting on the floor in front of it. Once I recognize that, oh, like I, that my chairs and in, in the house are kind of like a, the equivalent to junk food. They're fast, they're easy, but they're not as nutritious as if I just carried my weight and did the squat all the way down to the floor and then sat with my legs in a particular way that is basically like a separate stretch exercise, but it's not. It's just how I have to sit on the floor. Then I realize I could use my environment to facilitate a better outcome without thinking about it. So that, that was, it was just me. I'm always, I, our main approach to health these days seems to be trying to bring new behaviors into the existing environment, which requires a tremendous amount of willpower, which is in itself not really a natural human uh, thing that we have to deal with, right? Like we've never had abundance and the ability to choose between so many behaviors. There was just the minimal things that you had and you were like lucky to have them. You didn't have to choose between a food that was better or worse from you. It was like, well, this is the only food that's around. So you're going to eat it with gratitude. Um, so, uh, I just recognize that instead of constantly choosing to prioritize or to add into my life, hip stretches and knee stretches and, you know, 20 squats a day, and then plop down on the couch afterwards, that I could just remove my couch. And then I would get naturally throughout my day, not having to schedule a separate exercise time, all of the corrective exercises that I were was doing, and I didn't have to think about it anymore. I didn't have to schedule it separately in my life. So that's that's why we got rid of the furniture, was really to facilitate the behavior that we were after. I got it. And I bet, because you have two children, right? I bet yeah. that was an easier adjustment for them, or maybe it was before they were born, but I'm assuming they probably loved that or my kids do like the times that we like have a picnic on the floor, like just sit on the floor. They love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got two kids and the bulk of this was all done before they were born. Although we're constantly tweaking our environment in different ways that facilitates more movement, but they, because they haven't lost their ability for floor sitting with ease, like they haven't adapted to chairs. So therefore squatting and sitting on the floor they maintained all of their mobility to do so. So it's not only like I'll have parents say like, my kids don't want to do that. They like the couch. Well, it's like, sure, they are, they're adapted to it. Sitting on the floor for many people is uncomfortable. They're not used to the joint ranges of motion or the strengths used to come up and down or the pressure or that like it's the actual deformation of your flesh when you sit on something firm versus something that's full of, you know, cotton. Like when you sit on a couch, the couch deforms, your body doesn't move in a deformed way. If you're on the ground, the tissue has to do that deformation, which is also part of movement. And so they like it because they use more of their body for it, but I don't even know if they particularly know the difference because they didn't, they didn't transition. They do feel, I think more when that we're in places and we certainly travel a lot and we're in, you know, most places aren't chair free or furniture free. So I, I think they feel more that their movement is encroached once they've had the ability to move free. And then, you know, we have a small house, so we have lots of space in our house without those sitting objects. And so they just, they can certainly feel the, uh, the decrease in movement ability, kind of similar to if anyone has like started wearing minimal footwear compared to traditional footwear, or like at the end of the summer, when you're used to putting on a sandal and how, how free your feet feel, you know, to move around and be in the air. And then all of a sudden you go into like a sock and a winter shoe and you can feel the sides of it. Like you, you can feel that pressure on your body, like a tight shoe only because you've experienced a sandal. So because my kids have kind of the barefoot equivalent to home living, when we go into other places, I think they can feel, I can certainly feel like my body is being pushed or held together by how much stuff is in a house preventing you from moving fully through it. 
Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I love, I saw something recently about how they had figured out this correlation. Like if you can stand up from sitting position without using your hands or grabbing onto something or holding your knee, that like it was actually correlated with longer life. And I was laughing because I'm like, Katie's been saying this for years and it's all about the movement, but it makes so much sense. And as far as like kids and in integrating daily movement, I got so many questions about this. People asking, what about school? Do your kids go to school or homeschool? And how do you um, recommend that parents can incorporate this when kids have to be sitting? Because it's so hard for them to have to sit still all day. Are there anything, any things that parents can do to help incorporate movement even when their kids are in school? Yeah. And it's the same advice for an office. Like I feel like um, in a nine to five reality, which I would put that on both work and also education, that's a reality for a lot of people. And so to approach it in exactly the same ways, like step one, you look at your time before and after that kind of least mobile period. Like the, the most rigid part of your day is the part that you have to clock in and clock out. Like you can't just come into school an hour late because you felt like it, like you're expected to clock in. So it's not very malleable on a practical level. So what is your family doing for movement in the morning. And if you're like, there's no way I can get more movement. It's so hectic. It's like, okay, well then why is it so hectic? And like, let's look at to see if we can't make it less hectic with more movement. So a lot of things that we do are, um, sunrise breakfasts, you know, packing up breakfast. And we do this for dinner too. We often, I think, limit our exercise or hike to being like, not during dinner time or or meal time. But for me, I will oftentimes whip up something for dinner before I go to bed, you know, like maybe I'll make um, a frittata or something. So it's already cooked in the morning. I just slice it and I put it in a box and we go for an hour walk or bike ride. And that just replaces breakfast time. And I find that like my kids are always like up and excited to to get out and that they're often kind of squelched by like that I have like I got to pack lunch and I got to do all these things. So once I kind of shifted where I was doing my work, I found that there was this time in the morning where, and you know, you have to go to bed earlier to be able to get up earlier. So switching maybe your sleeping practices a little bit, it gave us like an hour of movement before our day even started. And we just eat breakfast on the go. So little things like that, dinner hikes are a big thing for us. You know, oftentimes work days are long and like, you're just kind of stumbling out at five o'clock. You're like, I can't believe I was inside in front of my computer all day long. And then in your mind, you're like, well, now it's dinner time. And then it's, you know, bath time. And then it's bedtime. We have that very rigid thinking. It's like we're immobile in our bodies and we're kind of immobile and inflexible in our schedule. Like we really perceive there's certain foods that you can eat at breakfast time and certain foods you can eat at dinner time in a certain way that the dinner hour has to happen. And because we're so locked to that, um, it makes changing the way we behave a little bit different. So once you realize you can eat whatever you want, Whenever you want, that makes it a little bit more flexible. And it's okay to take dinner hikes. Like we'll often, again, pack up food and then just set out for three miles and walk all the way through right up until bedtime. And that becomes the favorite part of the day. And it's just all of us are there. And and people feel sometimes feel tired. Maybe like, oh, the kids are so tired. You get revived really from movement and it's, you know, you don't have to go fast. You go just out there kind of slowly hiking along and everyone's meeting their nutritional needs, both movement and diet wise. So looking at that non-school time is probably the easiest way because you have very little, I mean, you have plenty of input about how school happens. You can certainly be very vocal and, and asking about a transition to, you know, bringing back play times and can teachers add more movement? I mean, these eventually are going to be the steps I think that parents are going to have to take is to say, we need to put the movement back into the school in the same way parents can, you know, affect oftentimes what food is being served. But that's, you know, that's very uphill working. You want to, before you start on the uphill, you want to make sure that you're maximizing the movement all around the times where you are have much uh, greater influence with ease. That's great advice. And I think what you were saying as far as adults, you don't have to sit in your chair the same way and you can move that way. I feel like kids do that naturally. Like I don't know of any kids who just sit perfectly still the whole day. They're like sitting on one foot. They're sitting on the front of their chair, the back of their chair, like cross leg. They move so much more even just in a chair than we do. They're fidgeting and, and to maybe not frame fidgeting or the inability to sit still as a bad thing. I mean, it's certainly, I think, 
makes it challenging for the teacher who needs everyone to be still, but that, that there's nothing wrong with that child, you know, to keep that in your mind as a parent. And, you know, you can say, you know, I know that when you're in school that you're fidgety. I just want to let you know that I know that this is something natural that your body is needing to do to balance the movement. And it's, it's okay with me that you're doing it just to not squelch. I think a lot of our movement faculties have been squelched by others inputting that our movement is wrong for us to do. Not being able to separate as a as an adult what's necessary for a particular institution to survive, um, being something separate than what one component in that institution, which would be the child, what that needs to survive. So just to keep those separate in your mind, and it could even be if you're a teacher to say, I need everyone to be still so that everyone can hear me. You know, like I appreciate the movement. I love that you're moving your bodies. That's great. Could everyone freeze for just a second so I can say this and not have to talk about the noise that your body is making, you know, that we can keep making a distinction between manners and biology and or uh, or something that the school needs to be able to run on that even you can still ask for what you need as a, an administrator, but to not tie it to being good or bad or right or wrong, because I, I've i had a lot of adults talk about what you just talked about saying, I, you're telling me now that I should be fidgeting in my chair. And I used to do that. And every adult told me that I was bad. And so now they're almost, whether they know it or not, they're, that messaging that for them to move is bad and rude and wrong, like they're having a, a challenge overcoming it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And Another thing that I saw a lot of people say when I asked people, like, what should I ask you in this interview? Um, a lot of people said things like, well, my kids already get plenty of movement because they're in sports, but I need to work on it. And I know you have an interesting perspective on organized sports. And actually, I 100% agree with you. But um, can you talk about, like, why sports just in and of themselves don't necessarily meet all the movement criteria that a person needs? Well, and, and plenty of movement is, you know, like, what does that mean? Plenty of movement usually means that people are getting like what we perceive we need, which is like that one hour of exercise or, you know, 90 minutes, which is a, is a very low total amount of movement. Like if you moved an hour a day, that's 4% of the day. So you're still sedentary. Like even exercises who exercise every day are still by definition, academic definition and exercise science sedentary. So we need to adjust our mindset about when someone has plenty of movement or not, or like that this message doesn't pertain to them because it really it pertains to anyone living within a sedentary culture or a movement outsourcing culture, which is us. Um, that all being said, sports can be a great way to get some movement and learn some skills and do some teamwork and learn about winning and losing and commitment to something. There's a lot of skills that come from it. However, sports, when we do sports, we tend to be doing one single sport, like you're doing gymnastics or you're doing baseball or you're doing soccer or you're playing football. Sports are the equivalent to eating one particular food over and over and over again. So while that food could be deemed a nutritious food in that within it are many nutrients, no single food makes up a healthy diet. If you were to like, what's the healthiest food? Like a kale, we always pick kale as like the, right now it's like the ultimate healthy food. Or you can even think of like bone broth, like a cup of bone broth as to, ha to be very nutrient dense, but you cannot subsist on it alone. Meaning that you are going to, you could be malnourished you will be malnourished if you only consume a single food over and over and over again for a long period of time because you don't need adequate food. You need your full nutrient profile made. And so sports, again, there are usually a bout of movement happening in an otherwise sedentary context that goes for exercisers too. This whole thing goes for exerciser sports. It's the same thing. Two, the, thing, the mode, which is, again, it's the academic or clinical term for whatever it is that you're consuming over and over again, your mode of movement or exercise or sports, when it's the same, it's just repetitious over and over again. And when you physically adapt to the same thing, what happens is some of your tissues get very, very dense and strong. 
and all of the others that aren't used for those particular movements get relatively weaker. And then that's the interface between the weak and the strong is where there's injury. So, I mean, as far as children's sports and injury, like there's a huge rise, huge rise in them because kids didn't really used to play organized sports in the way that they do now. And I think that organized sports is kind of, it's been ramped up, so to speak, in in this kind of uh, society that doesn't move very much. We're like, our kids need to move. Okay, I'm going to put them in this class, right? And they're going to, and they're going to do this sport and it's going to be intense. So you take sedentary kids, you put them into something that's repetitive and intense and they start doing it younger and younger. I mean, we played, I'm 42. We played all day after school. We didn't play any particular sport. We, when we did sports, we still rode our bikes to the sports and rode home and we still played and played and played before and after we had very long recesses. So we weren't as sedentary and we weren't as specialized, meaning there was great variance to the types of movements that we did. And so now you've got, um, there seems to be this transition of thinking, well, most professional athletes and really, really good athletes did not specialize as children. They played three or four sports all seasons. And then they just happened to, by the time they were like 18 or 19, be really good at one of them. But it was done in a context of lots of other strengths and movements and then they went on from there. Now we've got this idea that, well, if they like this and we start them early, they're going to be really good by the time that they're, you know, ready to go off and to play college sports or play professional sports. But the opposite effect is actually happening. What's happening is they don't have a very diverse base of movement strengths and they tend to get injured very early or are so burnt out on doing it for the repetition that they don't really go forward. So that's kind of new in, in a sports science of going, oh, early specialization really makes you weaker, not stronger. So I think sports are great. My kids play soccer, just in case anyone's um, wondering, although we have sawed off the back of their soccer cleats. So they're not wearing heeled soccer shoes, which most of them are, but they play soccer, but they will have you know, walked three or four miles every day that they play soccer. Like I wouldn't cross off the box of movement just because they played a sport, just because they practiced for a couple of hours and played a game on Saturday. I would still consider them sedentary because their total daily movement was so low. Yeah, such an important point. And at least from the few professional athletes that I've talked to in my lifetime, I think you're 100% right. They didn't start off playing for their one sport. They played a lot of sports. They just loved being active. And also the thing that like that entire generation, they were playing outside, they were climbing trees, they were building forts, they were swimming, they were doing all these like really dynamic movements. And I know you've written about like the importance of climbing and hanging and all these things that kids aren't doing very much anymore. So I think that's a great point. Like sports have a place, but they're not the only thing. And I've got a few other kind of rapid fire questions from people that like they really wanted answers from you. You don't have to answer quickly, but I want to make sure I get them in. So one is, are there any additional or different movement requirements in pregnancy or after pregnancy? I don't really think so. No, like, you know, a lot of what I do is based on um, like an evolutionary biology, modern hunter gatherer approach. So there's not radical uh, transitions in like the needs, like the movement needs. In fact, I would say that someone who is pregnant would benefit like relatively more from moving around than someone not pregnant um, for, for many reasons. Like we could do a whole entire show on just the pregnant body and the, its movement needs. But no, I wouldn't say that. Like, I think we're so used to framing. I, I, as I'm saying this, I go, I probably sound 180 degrees for most people, which is like, here are the concerns that you need when you're to think about when you're moving, when you're pregnant, but those are usually coming from a sedentary, like sedentary slash exercising mindset, where for me, it's more the understanding that your whole body needs to be moving a whole lot through your whole life. That pregnancy is probably the best time or even before you're pregnant, like to, to start that mindset so that you can most fluidly utilize that mass coming on to become very strong for the sport that you're about to, you know, that you're training for a sport, essentially, if you want to think about giving birth as a, maybe your most athletic endeavor ever, which I, which for many people it is, 
um, that you're, you have this long training period for it and that that's really a great time to start transitioning into what I would call a more movement rich life um, versus start this exercise program now that you would be transitioning your body to be um, and your life to have a lot more movement in it for a really um, great outcome, you know, as you're as not only having the baby, but like you're going into parenthood, you now have an eight pound accessory, seven to six to 10 pound accessory that you are going to be having on you. And a lot of women will write me. It's like, I, when I hold my baby, it's like, I get pubic symphysis. I can't hold it for a very long time. When I wear my baby, my diastasis gets worse, you know, and like, they're trying to balance all these things. So, so this is, it's a good time, um, to kind of start thinking about moving more, and also, it's maybe the easiest time because I feel like I'm just even speaking from experience. Once I knew I was pregnant, it seemed like health behaviors seemed that more important to me because it wasn't me really that I was thinking that they were benefiting from. It was this child. And so I think your motivation is higher. Your adherence is higher. Your your interest, it's like very intrinsic. And so it's a really great time to start transitioning to this mindset. And then when your child comes out, now your child can immediately day one, start benefiting from your more movement rich life, because you're never only moving just yourself when you are with child, you're moving them as well. And so that ends off paying off many times over as you go forward. Yeah, I think that's an awesome point. And I another question that I've gotten a lot from people is about minimalist shoes. It's a more popular thing now people there's a raising awareness about the importance of not having a high heel on your shoe, but even just having a minimal drop on your heel in general. And a lot of people said, like, what specific shoes does she recommend? How do you know if you have found good shoes? And especially for kids, babies and toddlers, what do you do? Well, I have I maintain shoe lists on my website. So you can always go there and look at winter shoes, summer shoes, and then just a general shoes list. There's also a kids list now. And then on the kids list, so like there's so many brands you can just look and see um, rather than having a specific brand, there are general features and and the shot and the shopping features are also on that those blog posts so that you can just print them off and be like, OK, here's what I'm looking for. So you're looking for um, minimal heel or right as low as you can find it. And often like in, in some of my books, I will show. And here's how we remove the heels with skill saws at our house when you can't find exactly what you need. So there's minimal heel. There is um, the ability for the toes to spread in the front of the shoe. So that front of the shoe is called a toe box. So a wide toe box, something that doesn't press your toes together or prevent them from moving. Um, there's also the lift at the front of the shoe. A lot of shoes kind of like, like a court jester shoe, only less pronounced. They, they bend upward. And there's a there's a picture of it on the website if you're not sure what that toe lift looks like. Flexible sole. So if you go grab your kid's shoes and you bend them in half and then twist them along their long axis, are they very malleable? If not, you're not going to be moving your foot very much. So I don't know if many people know, but 25% of the number of muscles and bones in the body are from the ankle down. There's 33 joints in each foot. When you put something on it that doesn't bend or move, that means that you've immobilized, I use the word cast in a lot of my books, you've casted those joints and all of the muscles between those joints. So your footwear is in fact limiting lots of motion of your body. Not only the heel, the heel is the part of a shoe that kind of casts many parts outside of the foot. It's casting your calves, your knees, your hips, your pelvis, your low back, your neck. It's like a, if you could only like do one feature of a shoe, I think I'd recommend dropping the heel off if you're feeling overwhelmed by the list of five. Um, so that was flexible sole and an upper. Upper is the um, last one. And an upper is the part of the shoe that connects the shoe to your foot. So a flip-flop has a very small upper, right? So it's not only small, it doesn't connect your full foot to the shoe. Every time you take a step, your foot is moving away from the sole of the shoe. So it does not have what's called a full upper, but you could get a sandal or you could just put a back strap on your flip-flop, adding barely any mass to the shoe 
and the shoe would then come up with your foot. So when the shoe doesn't fully attach to your foot, whether it's a flip-flop or like a slide-on clog or mule, you end up gripping your toes to hold it on. And so if you're wearing something like right now, go take a few steps and notice how your toes shorten and grip. You actually change your whole stride and everything when you wear shoes that will kick off your foot if you don't do these other things. So I recommend a full upper, especially for children. When I see kids in flip-flops, I just want to go get like a little back strap and put it around the back of their shoe because it's affecting their stride. Their stride, just like you adapt to a chair when you sit too much, you'll adapt your stride and then all of the muscles that are affected by your stride by choosing footwear that kind of artificially alters everything just to keep the shoe on. So that's that's your basic shopping guide. And again, you can find the list in a nice grid on those shoe lists. Awesome. I'll make sure we link to that in the show notes, or I'm sure you can Google it. Um, another question related to that somewhat. Parents asking, what about children who have flat feet or even adults who have flat feet? Is there anything that can help with that? I would guess they'd be more uncomfortable, at least in the beginning, in a flatter shoe. Um, but what do you, do you have an answer for that? You don't have, I mean, you have what are called flat feet, but flat feet, so this is in a book called Whole Body Barefoot. You can learn what a flat foot is. It is simply a hip that is internally rotated and an ankle that is dropped all the way in. So it's excessive pronation. So it's more a weakness of the foot, like the shape of your foot, whether it's a high arch or a low arch, is made up of the muscles and the strength in your body. So if you have a flat foot, my first recommendation is not about shoes. It's to start training the muscles of the hips and the feet to bring your arch back, that you can bring your arch back. Many people have. And it's just about learning, wow, the shape of my f- foot or my arch is controlled up in my hip, right? And so again, there's a, I think there's a couple of YouTube videos where I'm demonstrating what I'm talking about so you can actually see a f- foot go from flat to a high arch simply by a rotation up in the hip joint. So there are exercises to do to to start correcting that. And then a lot of them also go back though to how much are you sitting? Um, what shoes are you wearing? So I don't think I would alter my uh, shoe recommendation for flat feet. I would recommend more movement and more and, and more movement in various parts of the foot and hip. Very cool. And another question that came up a whole lot was, are there any movement-based remedies for plantar fasciitis and what should someone who's dealing with that start focusing on? Uh, same, same thing, right? So um, a lot of us have very weak hips, very weak glutes, very tight calves. We sit eight to 10 hours a day. We've always worn shoes that are stiff and heels. So you've got, they're different. These are all plantar fasciitis, flat feet. These are all symptoms of your movement diet, like you have a poor movement nutrition in these parts of the body, and here are the symptoms. So it's really the same thing. Like a balanced, a balanced diet changes. Like not a, there's not one perfect diet for everyone, but there are these main categories: macronutrients and micronutrients. And so um, there's a simple steps to foot pain, which is another book which I would recommend to start going. Oh, how where your body, where your pelvis is over your feet, that can instantly change a load in your plantar fasciitis. Where your thighs are rotated relative to your pelvis and your foot, that's going to change the load. And can you lift all of your toes individually? Can you just lift only your big toe? That's your first exercise for anyone lifting is take off your shoes. Can you spread your toes so that none of them touch each other while you're there? Can you lift just the big toe? And then can you lift the second toe and then the third toe and the fourth toe and the fifth toe and put them back down in order. Now you're starting to train the muscles in the feet instead of just kind of slamming down on your plantar fascia, which shouldn't be bearing the brunt of your weight. It should be these very strong and supple muscles in your feet, but you have to start working towards them. Awesome. And I know you have posts on these. I'll make sure to include uh, links to the ones that we've talked about in the show notes. But for anyone just listening who's not in the show notes, where can people find you online and how can they find out more about the things we've talked about? Uh, Nutritiousmovement.com is my main website. And then from there, you can can find social media is really good. If you like Instagram, I post a ton of examples of how we get more movement in our life and exercises on that social media. I'm most active there. I've got categories of information on the bottom of my website. So if you're listening, you're like, because my website, I mean, I wrote a blog for almost 10 years. So there are, I mean, there are hundreds of articles. You can sit and read through the entire thing if you want to, or if you want to just not be overwhelmed, if you go to the bottom, there's pregnancy and babies, there's feet, 
there's lifestyle, there's, you know, minimal home. And so you can click on these categories. And then I have selected for you, like, here's the top three podcasts of mine that I think will be helpful. Here's the top three YouTube videos that I think will be helpful. And here's 10 blog posts that I think will get you enough up to speed where you're like, okay, now I feel like I have a sense of where I'm going. Wonderful. And all those, of course, will be in the show notes as well. Um, You have such amazing information. I definitely encourage everyone listening to go check it out and to use. You have programs. They're wonderful. I've used them in pregnancy, especially. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to be here and for sharing your wisdom. Thank you, Katie. I appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I'll see you next time on the Healthy Moms podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.